This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by Haymarket Books. One title you might enjoy is Struggle Makes Us Human, Learning from Movements for Socialism. In this book of interviews, author and activist Vijay Prashad looks closely at the many underreported struggles being waged by workers all over the world, in countries like India, Peru and Kenya. You can find Struggle Makes Us Human at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The question of how to define anti-Semitism has become a major political controversy. Benjamin Netanyahu is the most important Israeli political figure of the last quarter century. He has always insisted that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are two sides of the same coin. They are one. Netanyahu made the following remarks in a televised address to a conference organized by the Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz in 2018. We see attempts to kill or harm Jews in the name of radical ideologies. And since the establishment of the State of Israel, we face a new form of anti-Semitism. Vicious efforts to demonize the Jewish state and deny the Jewish people the right to self-determination in our ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. When every nation is allowed to define its flag, its national anthem, its national identity, except for the Jewish people, this is anti-Semitism. When the International Criminal Court agreed to investigate possible war crimes committed by Israel in 2021, Netanyahu branded it as an anti-Semitic organization. When the ICC investigates Israel for fake war crimes, This is pure anti-Semitism. The court established to prevent atrocities like the Nazi Holocaust against the Jewish people is now targeting the one state of the Jewish people. First, it outrageously claims that when Jews live in our homeland, this is a war crime. Second, it claims that when democratic Israel defends itself against terrorists who murder our children, rocket our cities, we're committing another war crime. Israeli politicians and diplomats have made similar accusations against groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch when they described Israeli rule over the Palestinians as a form of apartheid. How did we reach a point where this kind of political discourse has become entirely routine? Our guest today is Anthony Lerman. He's recently published a book that examines the history of this debate, Whatever Happened to Antisemitism, Redefinition and the Myth of the Collective Jew. The book draws on his long experience of academic research into the different forms of anti-Jewish bigotry. For those who make use of it in their arguments, what is the concept of the new anti-Semitism and how does it differ from traditional forms of anti-Semitism in their view? Okay, so the argument for new anti-Semitism, it goes something like this. Uh, the old anti-Semitism was a hatred of the individual Jew or Jews as a group living in societies in which they were considered as aliens or strangers or unwanted. The new anti-Semitism is hatred of of Israel, uh, the self-styled Jewish state, conceived as the targeted, uh, persecuted, collective Jew among the nations. So the state is the Jew personified, as it were, and the collective Jew notion is on one level quite simply a metaphor for Israel, the Jewish state. But there's another way, I think, that it's useful to understand the concept of new anti-Semitism and describe the concept of new anti-Semitism, and that is that it encapsulates the conclusion that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Uh, This was a highly contested view for many years in Israel, in fact, actually, um, from the beginning of the state in 48, for two decades uh, and more. And um, Israeli leaders saw opposition to the state and Zionism as fundamentally political at first and not, not not as race hatred. But from the early 1970s through to the late 1990s, public Jewish, mostly Jewish discussion of the notion of new anti-Semitism intensified. So 
where once the relationship between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism was a question, something to be discussed, for the promoters of redefinition, for the promoters of new anti-Semitism, it became unequivocally an equals sign. What are the intellectual origins of the concept and when did it begin to enter the political mainstream? It really only seriously entered the discourse in the way we understand it today by 1974, when it was used as the title of a book by the heads of the Anti-Defamation League, uh, Arnold Foster and Benjamin Epstein. But in that book, they were warning actually about dangers to come rather than explicitly focusing on anti-Semitic anti-Zionism as a present problem. And one prominent reviewer, actually uh, uh, somebody called uh, A. Roy Eckhart, reviewing it at the time, felt that there was nothing especially new in what they were describing, as it so happens. But after the United Nations General Assembly passed the very significant Zionism equals racism resolution in 1975, discussion became common among academic Zionist historians, anti-Semitism experts, often orchestrated, these, these discussions were often orchestrated actually by the World Zionist Organization and the Israeli President's Office, um, of whether this anti-Israel, anti-Zionism was or was not anti-Semitic. And I followed these discussions and I write about them in, in my book, I follow them over time, and you can see as they developed, more and more people were shifting towards the notion that there was such a thing as new anti-Semitism. And some of the most prominent people who, who were in those many of those discussions and influenced those discussions, and some are still influential today, some of them had were quite were quite skeptical initially about the uh, uh, about new anti-Semitism, nonetheless promoted it. So for example, Professor Yehuda Bauer very well-known and respected Holocaust historian of the Hebrew University, who was the first head of the Sassoon International Center for the Study of Antisemitism at the Hebrew University. He uh, eventually came around to the idea and promoted it very strongly. And Bauer was one of the founders, and actually I think the first chairman of what became the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Kind of, it shows you how People discussing it back then in the 70s and early 80s and 90s, you know, are still influential today. A second influ very influential person who died actually in 2015 was Professor Robert Wistrich, who also became head of the Sassoon International Center at the Hebrew University. And Robert Wistrich, one of the main promoters of the eternalist notion of anti-Semitism, that has just been kind of the same thing all the way since antiquity. He became very influential in these discussions. And uh, again, he was slightly skeptical at the beginning, but fully embraced the new anti-Semitism notion and one of the people who pressed it very, very hard in all his talks, in conferences, uh, at all kinds of levels around the world. Another important person who's still active today, a professor, Erwin Kotler, uh, originally of McGill University. He was a prominent Jewish-Canadian politician. He was actually the attorney general in um, in one of the liberal liberal governments. And he actually, he was particularly significant because he was the one that really popularized the notion of Israel as the collective Jew am among the nations. And so he, in his own particular way, has also been pressing from very early on the new anti-Semitism notion. And finally, just one other example, there's Professor Dina Porat of the Tel Aviv University who founded a research institute at uh, the beginning of the 90s, which actually was financed by the Mossad initially. And she has been very influential in, in pressing and promoting the notion of, of new anti-Semitism and played a very significant role in the re redefinition of anti-Semitism as, as the IHRA definition again. And at the turn of the century, the notion had firmly entered the political mainstream, and indeed had become, in effect, what I call the new orthodoxy, uh, the dominant narrative about what primarily constituted anti-Semitism, and was fairly soon to be codified as a quote-unquote working definition by the European Union 
Monitoring Center on Racism and, uh, and Xenophobia, the EUMC. However, it was and has remained a contentious and consistently disputed notion. Ben and Jerry's announced last year that they no longer wanted to sell their ice cream in West Bank settlements. They faced an extraordinary backlash from the Israeli government and its supporters, which they discussed in this interview with Axios. No, I mean, what? I'm anti-Jewish? I mean, I'm a Jew. Well, my family is Jewish. My friends are Jewish, you know, I mean... I, I, I understand people being upset. It's a very emotional issue for a lot of people, and I totally understand it. It's a very painful issue for a lot of people. Can you help me understand why this decision came now? This conflict has been going on for years. We're always in favor of a two-state solution. The policy of the Israeli government has been to endorse these settlements in the occupied territories that keep on making it harder and harder to actually have a two-state solution. In what way do you both feel that, you know, withholding money or taking money from somewhere is a way to hold someone accountable? Well, in terms of Israel, I don't view it as withholding money. It's, it's just saying we don't want our ice cream sold in, in the occupied territories. Right. But that uh, affects the economy to an extent. Not much. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, a dro- it's a drop in the bucket. So then is that really a big stand? It's not a financial stance, it's, it's a policy stance. Their parent company, Unilever, later devised a plan to sell its Israeli subsidiary so that West Bank settlers could still access supplies of Berry Garcia ice cream. Ben and Jerry's are currently taking legal action to block the move. In the meantime, the Israeli government claimed to have won a great victory against anti-Semitism, as Reuters described in the following report. The foreign ministry spokesman hailed news of the Ben & Jerry's deal as a victory. Today is a great day that we celebrate a win over discrimination. Today is a day that we celebrate a win over the bigotry of the BDS. And today is also a day we celebrate a win over anti-Semitism. Israel earlier had warned Unilever that it would face, quote, severe consequences for the Ben & Jerry's sales boycott. The consumer goods giant had said it would find a solution by the end of this year. Under the new arrangement, Ben & Jerry's ice cream will be available to all consumers in Israel and the occupied West Bank. What are the main problems with the concept of the new anti-Semitism as you understand those problems to be? Well, where to begin on this? First, the concept relies on, ex- on acceptance of this notion, on the acceptance that Israel is the collective Jew. And it's a very seductive metaphor, actually. But I argue that it fails on at least four levels. First of all, on the philosophical level, I call it a category mistake. That's the, that's the philosophical term. Because a state cannot possibly have the attributes of a person. It sounds like a nice metaphor, but it really is a false one. So a state cannot experience anti-Semitism. It's simply, it's simply nonsense. So, and the definition of a category mistake is that it is the ascription of a property to a thing that could not possibly have that property. So I'm saying that the very notion of the collective Jew, which is integral to the idea or theory of new anti-Semitism, simply doesn't doesn't stand up then the next point in relation to 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 collective jew it, it the notion reduces jews to a singularity um sort of implies that they are all the same which is uh quite simply an anti-semitic trope next point on the collective jew it 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 puts the, the jewish state beyond criticism like the individual jew uh, wholly and intrinsically innocent. I mean, you can almost sort of see people thinking of, well, the most sort of extreme or the most iconic, if you like, example of what is anti-Semitism facing the individual Jew is the individual Jew standing, uh, as it were, naked in front of the gates of the ga- of the of the gas of the gas chambers. Um, so there's a there's, in my view, a kind of resonance there to say that you know. 
saying nasty things about Israel can be compared uh, can be compared to that, and it puts the Jewish state beyond criticism, wholly and intrinsically innocent, and therefore object of worship, which I argue is quite uh, absurd. And and a final point on the collective Jew, it um, and it follows on from from what I've just said. It makes Israel. It implies that Israel is the climax of Jewish history, for which there is no basis in Jewish teaching. I, I would argue the very well-known and well-respected conservative American Jewish theologian um, Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote that Judaism is not a religion of space and does not worship the soil. So too, the state of Israel is not the climax of Jewish history. And then I want to quote someone else who died quite a few years, many years ago, as, as did Heschel, of course. Um, and that is Professor Yeshayahu Leibovitz, um, a, uh, an Israel Prize winner, a, a very orthodox Jewish public intellectual, a scientist, prolific writer on Jewish thought and Western philosophy, very well known, particularly because uh, he referred to um, what was going on in the West Bank as being conducted by Judeo-Nazis. That didn't earn him many uh, 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 supporters. But he said, holding any state as a value in itself is inherently fascist and sanctifying any piece of land, including Israel, is a form of idolatry. And so when it comes down to it, I argue there's no speech about any state that can be justifiably prohibited. Then. The second main problem, uh, being based on the notion that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, it, uh, it, it drains the word of anti-Semitism of, of any useful meaning because to count as an anti-Semite, or to count as being anti-Semitic, it's sufficient to hold any view ranging from criticism of Israeli government policies to a denial that Israel has the right to exist as a state without having to subscribe to any of the tropes that historians since the Second World War have traditionally regarded as making up an anti-Semitic worldview. The third objection, while new anti-Semitism theorists say uh, criticism of Israeli governments is legitimate, in practice promoters of the idea virtually prescribe any such thing. Then fourth, although the emphasis in new anti-Semitism is placed on the new, practically all who subscribe to the notion of new anti-Semitism actually subscribe to the eternalist view of anti-Semitism, which, as I mentioned earlier in relation to Robert Wistridge, uh, uh, argues that you know, anti-Semitism is fundamentally the same thing since antiquity. So so the new in new anti-Semitism essentially just validates the, and I put in scare quotes, they have and always will hate us idea. Then uh, fifth point, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are often made to look as if they're two poles of a continuum, which would make them organically connected, where at some undefined and disputed point, anti-Semitism slides into anti-Semitism. And I would argue that they are completely different phenomena. There is no continuum. And yet, uh, I would also argue that this continuum notion is, is, in a sense, integral to what the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism contains. And uh, uh, so we'll come to that later. And finally, it's become... I would argue, crystal clear. The Palestinians are now seen by the Israeli state and leading anti-anti-Semitism organizations as the principal promoters of anti-Semitism and principal repositories of anti-Semitic sentiments simply because they want to and feel they have the right to, and they do have, to tell the truth about uh, the ethnic cleansing that they've experienced, dispossession, and demanding justice for the wrongs done to them. The redefinition of anti-Semitism as new anti-Semitism, as codified in IHRA, has produced a racist charter 
against Palestinians based on the prohibition of freedom of speech. And thus, effectively, anti-Semitism is being defined as what it is not. The Jewish philanthropist George Soros has become a primary target for anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in the world today. The Hungarian government of Viktor Orban has identified Soros as one of its main opponents. One billboard campaign in 2017 carried the slogan, Don't let Soros have the last laugh, together with an outsized image of the man himself. It was strongly criticised by Hungarian Jewish groups and by the Israeli ambassador to Hungary. But the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, slapped down his own diplomatic representative and endorsed the attacks on Soros. Netanyahu also gave the Hungarian leader a clean bill of health after meeting with Orban. Prime Minister Orban, the concerns that I heard raised from the Jewish community here reassured me in unequivocal terms, just as he did now publicly. I appreciate that. These are important words. And I also want to uh, thank you, Prime Minister, for standing up for Israel in international forums. You've done that time and again. Emmanuel Macron, whom I visited uh, two days ago, said something very important. He said, there's a new anti-Semitism that is expressed in anti-Zionism, that is, in uh, delegitimizing the uh, one and only Jewish state. In many ways, Hungary is at the forefront of the states that are opposed to this uh, uh, anti-Jewish policy, and I welcome it. I, I express the appreciation of uh, my government and the people, many people in Israel for this. With Netanyahu's endorsement in his pocket, Orban has continued to fixate on this alleged threat to Christian civilization. He launched another attack on Soros at a right-wing conference in the US earlier this year. Let's be honest. The most evil things in modern history were carried out by people who hated Christianity. Don't be afraid to call your enemies by their name. Consider, for example, George Soros, as you call him here. In Hungary, in Hungary we call him Yuribachi, which means Uncle Georgie. The wealthiest and one of the most talented Hungarians on earth. Just a hint, be careful with talented Hungarians. Uh, I know George Soros very well. He is my opponent. He believes in none of the things that we do. And he has an army at his service. Money, NGOs, universities, research institutions, and half the bureaucracy in Brussels. He uses this army to force his will on his opponents, like us Hungarians. Today's progressives are planning to create a new world, a post-Western world. Who is going to stop them if we don't? You also have to know how you should fight. My answer is, play by your own rules. You must play to win. You have to believe that you are better than your left liberal opponents are. And don't care what the liberals say. They always say you will lose. They say it cannot be done. You just have to prove them wrong. But there is one thing I have learned. We cannot fight successfully by liberal means. Because our opponents use liberal institutions, concept, and language to disguise their Marxist and hegemonist plans. This war is a culture war. We have to revitalize our churches, our families, our universities, and our community institutions. What was the significance of the abortive Camp David talks? the outbreak of the Second Intifada and the 9-11 attacks in the US with the subsequent war on terror for the development of this discourse about Israel and anti-Semitism? Yeah, sure. I would actually, Daniel, add one one other significant event to that, and that is the um, UN anti-racism conference in, in Durban in, in 2000, which uh, was seen by many at the time as, a, as an anti Israel hate fest. 
So that together with the events you've already mentioned, the significance of all of that lies in them constituting um, what I call in my book a turning point in the debate about new anti-Semitism and in the commitment uh, of Israel in taking the lead in what was in what increasingly was framed as the quote unquote war against anti-Semitism. So opinion shifted decisively at that point, at that turning point in favor of accepting new anti-Semitism, accepting the notion of new anti-Semitism on the grounds that the events and also, by the way, the, the suicide bombings that increased dramatically in 2000 to 2001, that this, that all of this was evidence of a global explosion of anti-Semitism. Now, this was contested at the time, but if you sort of read the newspapers uh, and magazine articles and things from, from the time, it's quite clear that, that what I call a, a, a moral panic set in, which Israel exploited for its own purposes. And its government began to see the diplomatic advantage of framing its internal crisis in anti-Semitic terms. And it was also able to uh, link its own troubles with the US experience of jihadi terror and again sympathy for itself by putting itself in the forefront of George Bush's uh, ill-judged declaration of the war against terror. So these events helped set the stage for moving from consensus on new anti-Semitism to actually formalising what it, what it meant. As the collapse of the peace process was followed by the outbreak of the Second Intifada, the US political mainstream depicted the Palestinian leadership as the main obstacle to peace. The historian Rashid Khalidi has taken on that consensus in a series of books. The following clip is from a talk he gave to promote his work Brokers of Deceit in 2013. For decades, this mantra, which we keep hearing about a peace process, has in fact concealed the fact that whatever process the United States was actually championing, it was not directed at achieving a just and lasting peace between Palestinians and Israelis, something that actually met the basic desiderata of both sides. A just peace that would bring this conflict to a conclusion on a fair basis would look quite different from the ends that this country has pursued for many decades. I would argue that such a peace would have to involve a complete and immediate dismantling of the entire 46-year-old Israeli military occupation structure, what Amir Ahas calls the matrix of control that's been established over the Palestinians and which is invisible to us. We see Palestinian violence. We don't see 46 years of every child for three generations or two and a half generations growing up under this. It would involve an end to the colonization of Palestinian land, this enterprise that is ongoing with the, with the force of a bulldozer. Um, and it would involve self-determination for the Palestinians within equitable borders, not just whatever Bantustan, gerrymandered, 15th congressional district style <laughs> outline happens to please Israeli settlement uh, builders, but a, a set of equitable borders. And finally, it would involve a just resolution for Palestinians who were made refugees in 48 or 67. Instead of actually trying to achieve these goals, end the occupation, stop this settlement process and figure out how to solve the refugee issue. Uh, I think that the process that the United States was engaged in was aimed at pressuring the Palestinians into conforming to the wishes of the oppressor, the occupier. What role did the Israeli state and its leaders play in shaping the conversation around the concept of the new anti-Semitism? So at, at, at first, in the 19. 80s and 1990s, the Israeli state and its leaders, state institutions and Israeli governments um, encouraged, but from a back seat, such conversations uh, uh, around the, the new anti-Semitism, as I was describing earlier, seminars organized by the World Zionist Organization and the president's uh, office, it was kind of left to them. So it was left to Jewish and Zionist academics, public intellectuals, writers to, to drive acceptance of the notion. 
and the Israeli authorities similarly at the time left it to the major Jewish defense bodies and Jewish representative bodies around the world, especially in the US, bodies like the American Jewish Committee and the Anti-Defamation League and Europe to, to take the lead. But post-2000, the Israeli state apparatus and, and, and government agencies, as well as Israel advocacy and lobby groups, engaged, if somewhat haphazardly at first, in a major way in shaping the conversation. So Israel began to revamp its anti-anti-Semitism organizations. For example, there was one that was founded significantly in 1988 called the Israel Monitoring Government Monitoring Forum on Anti-Semitism. That was, uh, well, it was closed down, but a new body was, was, was created, the Global Forum on Anti-Semitism. So there was institutional changes the government gave a big role to the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, a new ministry that was set up to be engaged in the fight against anti-Semitism. And Israel consolidated its leadership in this area through its backing of IHRA as an organization. And at the same time, a shifting of the center of gravity of Jewish life to the Jewish state though this process was contested in, in many Jewish communities, nonetheless, it, it proceeded apace, allowing Israel to claim legitimacy for its, its, uh, its leadership role. The Tree of Life synagogue massacre in 2018 was the worst example of anti-Semitic violence in American history. The killer invoked far-right conspiracy theories about the so-called Great Replacement. Speaking to MSNBC, however, the Israeli ambassador, Ron Dermer, was very reluctant to point the finger at the far right. Dermer, who began his career as a Republican political consultant, claimed that support for the BDS campaign in American universities was equally troubling. To simply say that this is because of, uh, uh, of one person or it only comes on one side is to not understand the history of anti-Semitism or the reality of anti-Semitism. One of the big forces in college campuses today is anti-Semitism. And those anti- the anti-Semites are usually not neo-Nazis on college campuses. They're coming from the radical left. How did the formally codified definition of anti-Semitism that has become known as the IHRA definition take shape? And what are the issues that you have with that particular definition? The IHRA definition started life as the EUMC, the European Union Monitoring Centre working definition in 2005. And it was uh, published on the EUMC's website in January of, of that year. And in many ways, it was a product of the new anti-Semitism becoming the new orthodoxy at the turn of the century. The alleged uh, spike in, in what many people refer to global anti-Semitism, and I put that in quotes because I think it's a very sort of doubtful concept that there is such a thing actually as global anti-Semitism. I mean, there are lots of anti-Semitism around, but as if it's just one sort of global thing, I think it's questionable. Anyway, the alleged spike in what was called global anti-Semitism was largely attributed to anti-Israel sentiment and attacks on Jewish targets by Muslim youth. And so bodies like the AJC, American Jewish Committee, the ADL, various Jewish defense bodies, Israeli academic and civil society groups, and and Israeli governmental bodies began informally discussing how a new definition of anti-Semitism was required to take into account these developments. And Israeli government minister at the time, well-known um, originally um, Soviet Jewish refusenik, Natan Sharansky, was sort of first out of the blocks in the sense with something in 2004 with a definition which came to be called the the three Ds, delegitimization, demonization, and double standards. So wherever those three things were applied to Israel, that was supposed to be uh, evidence of, of anti-Semitism. I won't linger on, on the weakness of, of that because uh, it, this was followed, and that came in 2004, this was followed in the same year by 
Ken Stern of the American Jewish Committee, and Ken Stern was the anti-Semitism expert at uh, at the AJC, who by then had actually already on his own drafted a new definition. And this, this definition was taken up by one of the key officials of the American Jewish Committee, Rabbi uh, Andrew Baker, who had very good relations with the EUNC. And he exploited a crisis that was facing the EUMC at this particular time over a leaked, suppressed report on anti-Semitism in Europe. The report purported to show that a lot of the anti-Semitism was coming from Muslim Muslim sources. And the board of the EUMC, who felt that the report wasn't rigorous enough, felt it shouldn't be published, but it was leaked this whole episode angered European Jewish leaders. And so this allowed the AJC to bring pressure to bear on the EUMC, to persuade it to sponsor a discussion on new on a new uh, anti-Semitism definition based on this draft by their anti-Semitism expert, Ken Stern. This resulted in the EUMC working definition being posted on, uh, you know, in January 2005. And it was touted as the product of objective anti-Semitism experts. It was, in fact, a political project involving almost exclusively Jewish Jewish bodies. And although some changes were made, it was remarkably similar to Stern's draft. The main difference was that the, uh, for anyone who knows about these definitions, there, there were uh, there were eleven examples of what uh, uh, of anti-Semitism in it. The main difference from Stern's draft to what was published by the UMC was that the eleven examples in the five hundred plus word definition. I, I, I have to I have to put that in five hundred words. The examples were made conditional on context, a, a change that Stern did not want in his original definition. These examples were examples of anti-Semitism. He objected to to the examples made conditional, but this was pressed very strongly by the director of the EUMC itself and and her her advisors, and and that's why the 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 conditional clauses are are, are there. Now, the EUMC text, which by the way was never formally adopted by the EU EUMC, let alone by the European Union. It made an initial impact of, of, of some note, but it also faced strong criticism. People like myself and others following this, uh, a good friend of mine, academic uh, Brian Clug, Richard Cooper, and there were, there were many people who, who, were, who were critical of it from, from the very beginning. And when the EUNC was replaced by another, by another body called the Fundamental Rights Agency it was partially replaced because of the, actually the furore that engulfed the UMC over this leaked uh, anti-Semitism report, which I which I mentioned. So when it was replaced by the FRA, the Fundamental Rights Agency, it more or less disowned the working definition and initially dropped it from its website. And uh, all of the bodies and individuals involved in the EUMC effort were very unhappy about this state of affairs, and before long began, understandably from their point of view, to seek ways of reintroducing it into the public domain. And most influential in this effort were the AJC, as I already mentioned, uh, but particularly the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles, which chose the IHRA, um, which only acquired its na- that name in 2012, as the vehicle for this purpose, for this purpose of reintroducing it in international domain, with the Wiesenthal uh, uh, Center and its representative at the IHRA, a man called Mark Weitzman, uh, taking taking the lead role. And so, this not very international body, IHRA, which has got I think thirty four members, almost all European, used largely by European states for the purposes of virtue signaling and anti-Semitism and Holocaust washing, adopted its working definition 
a very slightly amended version of the EUMC text in 2016 in very controversial circumstances, which we don't have time to go into now. Now, there are multiple problems with the with the work, working definition. Just mention a few. First, in, in two ways, it simply doesn't qualify as a definition. At 500, I think 538 words long, it is not a precise statement of the essential qualities of a thing, which is, that's a definition of a definition, if you look up the Oxford English Dictionary. And since the 11 examples are all conditional, the definition is not definitive, because if it's conditional, it can't be definitive. Then seven of the 11 examples of what might be, what might be anti-Semitic are about Israel and Zionism, seven out of the 11, which shows, in my view, it's highly contentious, evidence-free judgment of the anti-Semitism it regards as, as most serious. Then most of the Israel Zionism are, examples are, if judged to be anti-Semitic, simply the denial of freedom of speech, such as being able to say Israel uh, is a racist endeavor, for example. And, you know, I would argue you might disagree with that. You can argue about that, but there's no basis for saying that is an, an anti-Semitic statement. And to outlaw that is simply a chilling freedom of speech. Then the working definition, the IHRA working definition states that I think in its opening lines, it is not legally binding. But this has actually been widely ignored and is being made, in effect, legally binding in various countries, in various situations, in state legislatures, in, in, in the US, in pressure in the UK, by the government on universities to, to force them to adopt the IHRA working definition or have their funding cut. So it's, it, it, you know, it, it is being used as a quasi-legal document. And then... The fifth point, even its original drafter, Ken, Ken Stern, now strongly criticizes the way it is being used to chill freedom of speech on Palestine Israel on campuses. We're now going to hear a clip from Ken Stern himself speaking on a panel last year about the potential problems with this definition. In the US, for example, uh, with the backlash to the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter, uh, movement. Nobody's saying, well, let's have a definition of racism that includes specific examples that are political, like do you oppose affirmative action? Do you oppose uh, Black Lives Matter? Do you oppose leaving up Confederate statues for any reason? Um, you know, that would be seen as trying to restrict the speech. And that's precisely what these groups are trying to do with this. And we've seen other ways where it's impacted in the United States, because you had when the executive order was signed, Jared Kushner, wrote a piece in the New York Times, said, yes, this affirms our policy as the U.S. government that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, full stop. Sometimes anti-Zionism can be anti-Semitism, but not full stop, not all the time. There's no nuance there, black or right, right? Then you had Pompeo, the Secretary of State, saying, well, we're going to stop funding groups that uh, promote anti-Semitism using the definition and threaten the funding of Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. And you had in the UK, too, the Minister of uh, Education saying that universities had to adopt it and was certainly uh, coupled with a threat to fund it. And just one one final word on on why I find it most unsatisfactory. We need to be clear. New anti-Semitism was codified in the IHRA working definition codification, not only as an expression of the new anti-Semitism, but underpinned by the premise that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism as the principal form of anti-Semitism. So this makes IHRA a charter for pursuing a racist agenda against Palestinians, chilling freedom of speech, denying them their inalienable rights and, and doing them immeasurable harm, and and doing exactly what the, the IHRA, I suppose, is, is, is intended to do, and that is it makes Jews no safer from real anti-Semitism. Organisations like the Anti-Defamation League in the US, for example, or the Board of Deputies in Britain, argue that Jewish communities and their organisations are the ones who should take the lead 
in defining anti-Semitism on the grounds that minorities should be the ones who have the right to define their own oppression. How do you respond to that line of argument? Well, I, I, I respond with, with, with the deepest, deepest scepticism. I mean, absolutely no doubt that the first people one should listen to who are experiencing racism are the people who are experiencing racism and there's there's no way there's there's no there's no justification at all for them being ignored when it comes to discussion of what it means and and what to what to do about it it's quite obvious that the experience of groups on the on the receiving end of racism must be listened to and and respected but if every group fighting racism was given carte blanche on deciding what constitutes the racism they experience, it would make a nonsense of, of, of the law because it would already have been determined that such a thing was a racist incident and against the law. So the law would have no role in deciding it when surely the legal system must be the supreme authority making the judgment as to whether an incident is is racist or not. If required, I think definitions of racism, especially for legal purposes, must be the product of objective discussion and judgment, the product of experts, including experts and people from groups, groups affected, so that their input is absolutely essential. And and you know, sadly, we have already a kind of hierarchy. So, I mean, this is—it's very simple for me to say that. But if we look at the UK situation at the moment, where you have so much attention being paid to the Jewish situation through the IHRA definition and the forcing of IHRA definition on, you know, all and sundry, uh, all over all over the country, equivalent attempts to have a, a definition of Islamophobia have simply been you know brushed aside by the UK government i think some discussions went on but they didn't come to you know no agreement that was come to and it seems to me intolerable that there should be such effort such attention being paid to the jewish case when I, i'm not into hierarchies of racism but i am into understanding that some groups experience racism much more severely than others and i would say that that muslims are are in that position, and for them not to be given the same respect as uh, as Jews is simply unacceptable. But I don't think it is right that Jews themselves should be, or any any ethnic or religious group should be able to determine for themselves what is and what is not uh, the racism that they experience. The left-wing forces that have emerged in the UK and the US over the last decade have been dogged by some very serious accusations of anti-Semitism against figures like Jeremy Corbyn, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. What is the substance behind those accusations, in your opinion? In my view, and I have I've read a lot and, and been quite engaged in discussions around uh, around Corbyn and, and his alleged anti-Semitism. And I have tried to keep up with what's been said about Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, although I'm not an expert on, on, on the precise um, circumstances of the, of the American situation. Nevertheless, I, I don't see a shred of evidence supporting accusations against these three politicians. In the Tlaib and Omar cases, as as far as I know, as far as I've read, the accusations relate to Israel, its discriminatory treatment of the Palestinians, and American support for an Israeli government that has instituted an apartheid regime in the occupied territories and, and within the Green Line. So I would relate all that I've seen from what they've said to uh, to direct concern about about those things with some strong language used, but at no time in what I've read uh, do I think that the line has has been crossed 
So I, I think, you know, we're dealing with false accusations here. Special thanks to Representative Omar of Minnesota. Oh. Oh, I forgot. She doesn't like Israel. I forgot. I'm so sorry. Donald Trump has repeatedly singled out Ilhan Omar, accusing her of hating both Jews and Israel. When I hear people talking about some people, some people with the World Trade Center, some people, no, not some people, much more than some people. When I hear the statements that they've made, and in one case you have somebody that comes from Somalia, which is a failed government, a failed state, who left Somalia, who ultimately came here, and now is a congresswoman who's never happy, says horrible things about Israel, hates Israel, hates Jews, hates Jews. It's very simple. And if the Democrats want to wrap their bows around this group of... There have been many similar attacks launched against Rashida Tlaib, whose parents came to the US from Palestine. This is just one example from the Republican Congressman Charles Fleischman. I heard some of my Democratic colleagues stand with me, with Israel, with our ally, to fight terrorism with a defensive weapon system. And what did we just hear? We heard the Democratic Party speak out. We heard right now from my colleague across the aisle with a shocking statement. She opposes this because they have a vocal minority in the majority party that is anti-Israel, that is anti-Semitic, and as Americans, we can never stand for that. Let us stand with Israel. Let's combat anti-Semitism wherever it is in the world, whether it's in the United States, whether it's from terrorism. I am shocked, Mr. Speaker, with what I just heard. I ask the majority to condemn the comments that were just made by their member. And with that, I, I deal with the, with three accusations against Corbyn, actually, in my in my book, in a chapter on the use and abuse of anti-Semitic stereotypes and tropes. And uh, taken together with the accusations leveled at, at Omar and Tlaib, they all contain the same basic failures, I would argue, to understand the nature of anti-Semitism. And all see anti-Semitic tropes and the endorsement of them when there are none. And this is willful. It's not inadvertent. In one Corbyn example, there were anti-Semitic tropes. There were anti-Semitic tropes in a mural he commented on in, in a Facebook post. But there's no evidence, actually, that he even looked at the mural image in the first place. And the visual tropes themselves of, of two apparently Jewish bankers were ambiguous, if you, if you look at them. They were touted in the press uh, by many anti-anti-Semitism warriors that these were images straight out of the German Nazi newspaper Der Sturmer, or just like images on the cover of the Protocols of, of the Elders of Zion. Well, if anyone actually matched the images in the mural to Nazi images of Jews, you'd find hardly any relationship between the two. That's not to say that the images in the mural were not anti-Semitic, because actually it's, we understand that the person who did the mural said that they they were. But, you know, this is a complicated thing. It's not very, you know, it's treated very simply, this notion of, of what is and what is not a trope. And then in a second example uh, in the book, at a press conference to launch the results of an inquiry into anti-Semitism and racism in the Labour Party by the then Shadow Attorney General, Shami Chakrabarti, words were uttered and directed at a Jewish MP and a journalist sitting with her in, in the audience. They were immediately taken up, taken to imply an accusation of Jewish control of the media. After those words were uttered, some, someone else shouted, quote, anti-Semitism at the launch of an anti-Semitism report. The MP in question stormed out, followed by another, another journalist. Now, it wasn't Corbyn, who at the time was on the podium with Chakrabarti, hardly had a clue what was going on. This is being broadcast live, and I watched it. It wasn't Corbyn who'd uttered the words directed at the Jewish MP, but a black 
Labour Party activist in in the audience who had no idea that the MP was Jewish. Now, in in interpreting all of this as, as anti-Semitic was was bizarre, but within minutes, this fictitious anti-Semitic incident was all over social media and rolling radio and TV news with responsibility for the alleged incident said to be Corbyn's and and even evidence of his own anti-Semitism. So I think that in all of these cases, you're facing this issue of misuse and often deliberate misuse by people setting out to harm, to politically harm the people concerned, uh, misuse of of anti-Semitic stereotypes and, and tropes and Essentially, when it comes to anti-Semitism, the public space is so highly charged and influenced by individuals and groups policing what can and what can't be said, who are in effect reading from the IHRA working definition playbook that objectivity about anti-Semitism doesn't get a look in. Al Jazeera has obtained the largest leak of documents in British political history. Hundreds of thousands of internal communications expose how operatives secretly take control of Britain's Labour Party. Al Jazeera recently broadcast a batch of documentaries called The Labour Files, which examined the allegations of anti-Semitism against Jeremy Corbyn. One episode took a close look at a previous BBC documentary about Labour under Corbyn, which was called Is Labour Anti-Semitic? The main eyewitnesses in that programme were former party officials who were bitterly hostile to Corbyn. They accused the leader's office of sabotaging their efforts to combat anti-Semitism. Earlier this year, the lawyer Martin Ford published a report on Labour's organisational culture that had been commissioned by Corbyn's successor Keir Starmer. According to Ford, the version of events presented by the BBC was wholly misleading. In the Labour files... Al Jazeera fact-checked one hair-raising allegation from Is Labour Anti-Semitic against the empirical record. A description of Marks and Bird's disciplinary interview features in the documentary. The interview is conducted by Ben Westerman, a party official who is Jewish. Ben Westerman received dozens of complaints. While interviewing one member, he was confronted with the very anti-Semitism he'd been investigating. And we finished the interview. The person got up to leave the room and then turned back to me and said, where are you from? And I said, what do you mean, where am I from? And she said, I asked you, where are you from? And I said, I'm not prepared to discuss this. And they said, are you from Israel? What can you say to that? You are assumed to be in cahoots with, with the Israeli government. It's this obsession with the fact that, that just spills over all the time into anti-Semitism. Rika Bird speaks to Westerman at the end of the interview. When he says, um, where are you from? Are you from Israel? That's an absolute lie. I didn't say that. With Westerman's permission, the two women record the interview. The, the, the full recording shows what actually did happen. Curious because I haven't been in the Labour Party very long and I've certainly never been to anything like this informal interview before. Um, and it, so I'm just curious about, um, like, what branch are you in? I don't think that's relevant. OK. I, I hope that's OK. I'm sorry, I, just don't, I don't think where I'm from is, is at all relevant to, to the investigation. I did ask Westerman, what branch are you from? Um, meaning what branch of the Labour Party, because it was a Labour Party internal investigation. The word Israel never came into the exchange between me and Westerman. At the time, I, I could hardly believe it, but I actually feel very angry about it now, because I feel it's so trivialising what is a really important issue. The following clip comes from an interview with James Schneider, who worked for the Corbyn leadership at this time. The more alarmist wing of reporting on this issue, it hurts Jewish people because the idea that Jewish people were afraid of a Corbyn government is true. But why? It's the fact that we're told 
it's an existential threat by our own papers. We're presented with this image of hordes of virulent anti-Semites. Now, that frightens people. And you can understand why that frightens people, because that is a terrifying image. It's a terrifying vision. It just has nothing to do with the truth whatsoever. And at least some of the people that were propagating it knew it had nothing to do with the truth. As a final question, in several countries today, including Britain and the US, mainstream political debate concerning anti-Semitism is dominated by an understanding of what it means to be anti-Semitic that you consider to be fundamentally flawed. If that is the case, then what steps, if any, can we take from this point to shift the terms of the debate in a more positive and constructive direction? Right, yes, this is the $64,000 question. <laughs> um, and I, I, I don't, and I won't shy, shy away from it, because we cannot understand how uh, we got to where we are today with the crises and confusion around anti-Semitism without being fully aware of the historical context of what's happened. My personal experience of, of the history makes me uniquely qualified to provide this, I, I feel, because I've been at the academic and political coal face of this issue for, for 40 years. So although people must judge for themselves my book and you know where they agree and what they criticise it and so on, but I think I am in a unique position here of being able to play both of, of these of these roles. Very other very few other people have had that experience. And I feel I've been able to turn that into something very useful because I can more fully understand what's gone on against the historical context. And second, we have to recognize that what we're facing is a structural problem that cannot be countered incident by incident. A lot of the pushback against IHRA and false accusations of anti-Semitism, a lot of the pushback is going into the minutiae of, of what happened in a particular incident. And, you know, there's incredible amount of that on the web. And some of it is excellent. I mean, uh, I'm not I'm not criticising it per se. People who, who've tried to get to the truth and tell the truth uh, have done amazing, amazing work. But so much time is spent on detailed re refutation, while the other side, the enemy, as it were, controls the larger narrative. And the time spent on detailed refutation, I don't think impacts on the on the larger narrative. So we have to understand there is what I call, well, when I say I call, actually, it's a concept I've respectfully borrowed from an academic, Esther Romain. And that is that there is a, a, what she calls a transnational field of racial governance that serves to perpetuate the, the new anti-Semitism narrative. And it must be continually exposed and critiqued and it's dominated by heavyweight institutions that cannot be dismantled. So it, it's uncovering that structure and critiquing it, which is, which is crucial. But, and this is the third point, the narrative, the narrative can be dismantled, I believe, and replaced by relentless exposure of the falsity of the discourse with, with its reliance on the myth of the collective Jew, on other things I write about, towards the end of my book on apocalypticism, where a lot of the people like Robert Wistrich and, and Owen Kotler write, which is always pointing to an apocalypse about to happen, another Holocaust, and so on. So th this discourse, which is really detached from, from, from Judaism and its framing of combating anti-Semitism as a war uh, on an abstract noun, something else I, I write about, and we have also in this narrative and discourse demanding the impossible, what I call eradication discourse. So many of the meetings and um, demonstrations that were held by Jewish organizations and others demanding an end to anti-Semitism, the complete eradication of it, the defeat of anti-Semitism. I mean, I, I don't think any serious student of racism and anti-Semitism believes that you'll ever eradicate racism or anti-Semitism. There's a lot you can do to fight it and push back back against it. But that language 
um, only paves the way, actually the language of eradication, for the continuity of complaint, because what you're doing is you're demanding the impossible. So you can keep having a go at your political enemies, because by demanding the impossible, that can never be can never be satisfied. Then fourth, you have to explain the fraudulent nature of the redefinition political project. Uh, what it has achieved in, in IHRA is to redefine anti-Semitism as what it is not, exercising the right to free speech on Palestine-Israel. If, you, if you're going to f- go to war against free speech, you are ensuring that you will never successfully fight anti-Semitism. And fifth point, allowing Israel to set the agenda and dominate the narrative must be challenged. You cannot fight anti-Semitism with Zionism, which is essentially what Israel, by putting itself in the forefront of this fight, uh, is trying to do. Nor can you claim any moral authority to lead the fight against anti-Semitism when you give a free pass to the heads of other states, uh, especially authoritarian ones who who love Israel, but tolerate and and even disseminate anti-Semitism at home. Give just one example, such as Hungary's Viktor Orban, who uses anti-Semitism to attack the philanthropist George Soros, who is Hungarian born and of Jewish origin and supports human rights groups in Israel, Palestine, this phenomenon has led to a particularly ugly political redefinition of anti-Semitism, which has been going the rounds, and you may have heard of it yourself, and that is that anti-Semitism used to be about people who hate Jews. Now it's about people who Jews hate. And finally, uh, I think to, to try to move out of this mess we're in, cooperating with others on dismantling real anti-Semitism, racism, not privileging anti-Semitism, but recognising different levels of racist harm with with Jews by no means in the forefront of that. Cooperation on this with other groups, I think, is absolutely essential. State institutions and right and centre-right political parties, even some so-called left-wing parties, seek to divide us all giving credence to racist experience of some groups and not others. And I don't think, I mean, we must not allow this to happen. Many thanks to Anthony Lerman for that overview of the arguments in his book, Whatever Happened to Antisemitism? If you want to explore these issues in greater detail, Whatever Happened to Antisemitism is now available from Pluto Press.